Ida Scudder's father and grandfather had both been missionary doctors in India, but she had decided that India was the last place that she wanted to, to live. And so a visit back to India to help her sick mother began to alter her vision of what God wanted with her life. Three men, two Hindus and a Muslim, had come requesting help for their wives who were giving birth. And the husbands had refused the assistance of her father because in that culture, it was customary that, uh, that men could not, you know, have anything to do with women. And so even though he was a doctor, he could not assist in those deliveries. And so for Ida, the night was actually very long and traumatic. She said, I could not sleep that night. It was so terrible. Within reach were three young girls dying because there was no woman doctor to help them through this difficult pregnancies that they were experiencing. She said, I spent much of the night in anguish. I did not want to spend my life in India. My friends were begging me to return to the great opportunities, amazing opportunities that a young woman would have in the United States. This was probably 70, 80 years ago. I went to bed in the early morning after much prayer for guidance, and I think it was the first time that I really sensed God speaking and directing my future. And all the while, as he was working on my soul, I felt this deep sense that he was calling me into this work. When she awoke, she learned that the three young women had died. Later that day, she told her parents that she would study medicine, return to India to help such young women in need. After graduating from Cornell Medical College, she left for India and began a woman's complex, a medical complex in Valour. Today, that complex has become one of the best medical centers in the entire country. The sight of three anguished husbands became a vision from God that thrust Ida into a lifetime career of serving people in India as a medical professional. Do you know, love is such a powerful, motivating factor in bringing grace to our world. John, in writing the true nature of being a child of God in the first letter of John, not, not his gospel, but his first letter, the first epistle, there's a number of things in that epistle that evidences to us the nature of truly God's grace at work in our lives. First of all, God's children renounce their wayward ways. They, they turn from sin. That's really the beginning of an, uh, of, a, of an evidence that God's at work in your life when you turn your back on sin. Number two, uh, when you and I begin to obey God's word, we start, you know, it's no longer like I need to do this or I should do this, but now I want to do this. I desire to do this. Number three, we reject the value system of the culture around us because primarily the culture around us is in hostility towards God and its value system is at cross purposes to God's value system. And so we begin to recognize that and we, we realize we're kind of getting out of step with where the culture's at. How many have recognized that? The closer you get to God, the more out of step you are with what the culture's propagating. And it's the truth. And finally, and this is the one we're going to focus in on today, that ultimately that you and I become a conduit or a reflection of God's love to our world. That's an amazing thing, you know, that you and I can actually exhibit God's divine love to other people. Warren Worsby, in writing about the nature 
of God's love towards a hostile culture, he says something very interesting. He says, one reason why people, maybe why God permits the world to hate Christians is so that Christians may return love for the world's hatred. I mean, it's kind of an interesting thought. That maybe one reason why God allows it is so that love can be revealed to people. Because how many think it's interesting when someone's hating you and you're loving them back, that's not the normal response. How many say that's probably true, Pastor? That's really not the normal response when people behave a certain way to us in a very unloving way. And we respond back in a very loving way. That's declaring something. That's revealing something. And I believe as a true Christian, that's the kind of uh, that kind of reflection that God wants to bring through our lives. So the very uh, characteristic, the, probably one of the chief characteristics of the nature of God is that he's a loving person. How many know that? And actually all of God's activity and actions and words are filtered through his love. Because God is love. And so when God does something, it's always done in a loving way. And you go, well, yeah, but God judges people, Pastor. I go, yeah, but he does it in a loving way. God is always giving people an opportunity to change their mind. God has, you know, been so patient with humanity. You know, you and I do not have anywhere near the level of patience that God has. Somebody say that's probably true. I mean, God is really long-suffering with people's bad behavior. And we see that, as a matter of fact, because in the the Bible, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, we notice something that when people treat us poorly, God says that that's normal. We should expect that. Because when we're really reflecting God's love, the response we sometimes get is hostility. I know that sounds unusual. You'd think that love would beget love. And generally it does, but in some cases it actually creates hostility. And in Matthew chapter 5, it says, Blessed are you... When people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's a blessed condition. I don't think we see it that way. But what that should say to us is that we're actually reflecting God's love. And some people get turned off by it. Anybody have this experience where you're, where you're loving somebody and they're not happy with that expression? They're just like turned off by that. Yeah, some of you say, I've had that experience. He goes on and says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And isn't that the truth? You know, the people that serve God in other generations who were actually, you know, doing God's will and serving God and communicating, they were persecuted, even by people who profess to know God. It's amazing. You know, even, even the religious people were killing prophets. And we read that in the Old Testament. So what should our response be? Well, Matthew continues on, but I tell you, love your enemies, how many know that's not an easy thing to do? How many can say that's probably a difficult? Love your enemies. Do you know that you know, Christianity is, is a religion of love? And it actually teaches us to love people who despise us and don't do nice things to us. We're to respond back in love. And that's a difficult, you know, that's, that's actually foreign to our human nature. Because usually when somebody does something nasty to us, something inside of us rises up and wants to do something nasty back to them. Come on, let's be honest. Isn't that true? Isn't that kind of human nature? Of course. But you know, when somebody does something nasty to you and what rises up within you is love, how many go, that's abnormal? 
That's supernatural. That tells me if that's what's happening inside of you, then God must be living inside of you. And that's what John is going to argue in this epistle. That when somebody hits your buttons, instead of getting frustrated and impatient and irritated, all of a sudden you're just, you know, popping out with, you know, grace and kindness and forbearance. I mean, that's not what normally people do. And when we start behaving like that, the world starts taking notice that something unusual is happening in our lives. That God's love is actually penetrating inside of us because that's the nature of God. And when we have that happening through us, we're experiencing and and demonstrating and manifesting the nature of God's love. As a matter of fact, God goes on to say here, I mean, through Matthew, he says, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. So when you and I rejoice and, and you know, we're, we're glad and we're loving and we're praying for people, we're actually reflecting who God is. We're reflecting our Father's nature. He said, so that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. And, he's, and this is what our Father in heaven is like. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What is he saying? God blesses the people he created. God is good to everybody. That's what he's telling us. How many say, well, I didn't know God's good to everybody, but he is good to everybody. And and so we're gonna take a look here today at the true test of authentic faith. Because I think a lot of us, we can profess faith in God But it's what's inside of us that's coming out of us that's revealing our true heart condition. And I believe that God can so change us that we can begin to reflect the very nature of God from within us. So let's take a look at this. You know, the authentic expression of faith is reflected in the nature of God flowing from us. And we know the source of love is God, and we know God is love. And so one of the tests that we truly know God is that we start manifesting this love, not just to God who's invisible, but we literally start manifesting this love to people we see around us. And that becomes an authentication of our faith in God. The true nature of an authentic believer is that they love others. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. This is our text today. You want to turn there, right toward the end of the Bible. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. We're going to look at a lot of verses in that chapter. I'm going to go right to the end of the chapter. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Who does, whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. So now he's created a criteria. He's saying, The test of true faith is love. I would argue and say this, that the end of our faith is love. Paul talks about that in Timothy. That actually we start out, we become a Christian. It may be, we're st- we have a simple faith. Maybe it's undeveloped. We don't fully know God. And we have a little bit of love dropped inside of us, okay? So we're just starting the journey and we open our heart and God's love seeps in. And all of a sudden we start changing and we're a little, you know, some of the rough edges are coming off. But if we keep walking with God over time, what's going to happen if we keep opening our heart to God's love? God's love is going to keep developing inside of us and pretty soon there's going to be more of that nature flowing from our lives. You know, it's just like a a compass. 
you know, there's a magnetic north to the planet Earth. The nature of Earth is, it's magnetic. And there's a magnetic north. And you get a compass, and what happens? Boom, it shoots straight to north. Isn't that true? Isn't that what, and that, thank God for compasses. It can help us when we're lost on land, you know. Oh, I got a compass here. It'll tell me which direction I'm going in. It's the same thing with God. Here's a compass that will help us know which direction we're moving in. And it's really simple. You know, God's nature is love. Just like the earth's nature has a magnetic, you know, tilt towards the north. God's nature is love. And so when you and I are reflecting the nature of love, we know we're reflecting the heart of God. Now, but what does that mean? I think Warren Worsby says it. Does that mean that everyone uh, who has ever loved somebody loves God? Well, I don't think that's what he's saying. And Warren Worsby says it this way. This does not mean that love is God. And that the fact that two people love each other does not necessarily mean that their love is actually holy. Uh, Love does not define God, but God is the one who defines love. Okay? So we're going to talk about a very special kind of love. As a matter of fact, it's interesting that when the New Testament writers chose the Greek word for love that would express the nature of God's love, they chose a word that was not utilized very much in the Greek language. They chose the word agape, okay? Because usually people talked about filial, which is kind of a brotherly love, you know, a, a husband-wife kind of love. But agape love, they, they recoined it and redefined it for the New Testament. Gary, uh, Stephen Smalley writes, it is true that loving people are to be found outside the Christian church. How many know there's a lot of nice people and loving people outside of the church? That's true. We know that that's true. But As important as love is, John is well aware that by itself, love is not a mark of being a child of God and knowing him. In chapter 3, verse 23 of 1 John, the command to love is directly linked to the demand for faith. And indeed, in that context, love is mentioned after the obligation laid upon every would-be Christian to believe in Jesus Christ. So here it is likely that love is being presented as the effect of a new birth from God and the knowledge of God rather than their cause. In other words, this love (coughs) is really the outcome of a genuine faith. That's what I'm trying to get across this morning. This love that comes into our life comes because we've put our faith in Christ. And it's, it's an amazing kind of love because... It's God's kind of love, which is a very sacrificial kind of love. And as we're about to see, it's the opposite of human love. Human love has got some self-interest in it, okay? You know, we love because we are loved. You know, it's that kind of a th- scenario. But here in 1 John verse, chapter 4, verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Now, when God did that, you know, he did that while we had no thought of him. He did that while we were in enmity, we're in hostility towards him. So God wasn't doing it because he was, you know, responding to our love. We weren't even loving him. Matter of fact, we were ignoring him. We were in rebellion towards him. We were apathetic towards him. We were indifferent towards him. But God loved us. And he died for us. That's, that's an amazing thing. I mean, you know, it's easy to love people who love you, right? How many say that's pretty easy? It's a lot harder to love people who are ignoring you. It's a lot harder to love people who are hurting you and are nasty towards you. That's a lot harder to do. How many say that's true? That's a lot harder to do. 
But that's how God loves. As a matter of fact, God loves all of humanity. I was reading in Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. So God's nature towards our, our, the human world is absolutely love. He loves us. God is compassionate to human beings. We've already talked about the sun and the rain falling on the just and the unjust. Matter of fact, in verse 16, he says, You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. So every good thing that people are enjoying in this life, really God's providing for them, even though they don't know that. They may not acknowledge it, but every, every joy in this life, God's bringing to them. But then it says, a little later on, God becomes more specific. He says, now the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. So now we, we have a little shift here. There are some people who know God, who are calling out to God, and God's going to respond to them. And it says, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and he saves them. So let me make the distinction. God loves everybody, but not everybody acknowledges God. And a lot of people, you know, they're satisfied strictly with the temporal. And they're satisfied with the material. How many people have you noticed that will pray, God help me out of this jam. But they have no, they're not, they're not trusting God for their soul. They're just trusting God for something temporal. I've seen that. Or something material. But you know, to really get to that place where we're trusting God for that which is eternal. And that which is spiritual. And that which transcends this life. That's another ball game, isn't it? That's another situation. And God wants us to get to that place. Because a lot of people in this world are not living life to its fullest. Isn't that the truth? Jesus said, I've come to give you life and that more abundantly. But most people are not living life to its fullest. A lot of brokenness in our world. A lot of unhappiness. Right? Come on, let's be honest. Isn't that the truth? A lot of sadness. A lot of despair, a lot of discouragement, a lot of depression. You know, we got, we got a lot of things going on in our world. And I'm just telling you, Jesus said, I've come to give you life and it to the fullest. So what God intends for humanity is far greater than what most people are experiencing. But God wants us to experience this. And how can we have this kind of life? It cannot come apart from him. Because he's the author of love. He's the source of it. And when you and I do our own thing and live for ourselves, we're living a shallow life. It's not in its fullness. It's not designed to be lived this way. And that's why there's so many unhappy people around us. In verse 9, we discover one of the purposes of God's love is for, so that we might live through him. Look at verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. You and I can't live apart from him. You see, we need him. You know, we struggle with how to live well. I've already suggested that. What's even more challenging is how to live a life pleasing to God, a loving life, because sin, what it does is short circuits love. That's all it does. You know, how many here you work with electricity? You have a you have a problem. We should all understand it because we all have circuit breakers in our house. All of a sudden, boom, something goes out. The circuit goes off. You know, it's been short-circuited, right? The line has been cut off. And that's all I'm saying. A lot of us, during our daily life, we have moments when we short-circuit God's love coming into our lives. And therefore, we don't have anything to flow out to others. You know, we're in the dark just like everybody else. 
But when we deal with the sin issue, all of a sudden love comes back into our lives and all of a sudden now things can begin to move once again. So how can we live a selfless, forgiving, and self-controlled life? Hershey Davis expresses it this way, God's kind of love is best understood as selflessness. Even as sin is selfishness, agape love is selflessness. And so last week I talked a little bit about that, that there's the two selves, there's the true self and the false self. The false self is really, its appetite is to just please our sinful nature. But the true self is more altruistic. It has a higher aim. It wants to be the best person they can possibly be. True? And we want to live at this high level. And you know, the the moments we feel the best about ourselves is the moment, it's not when we get something. Usually it's the moment that we've helped and empowered someone else. And we've given something away and we just feel so good about it. Because we've done something and it's been totally for somebody else. It's been a selfless act. And that's, the, that's because in that moment you're loving. And that's, what, that's why we feel good. Because now we're becoming more like God in that moment. That's a God-like moment. That's why we get excited about that. And how does that happen that we can do that? Well, it takes God's spirit inside of us. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, we know that we live in him and he is in us because... He has given us of his spirit. So we need the spirit of God to love like this. You and I are not capable of living at this altruistic level apart from God's spirit. And that's when we're challenged from the book of Galatians, which is a really neat book. Remember chapter five, he he starts out this way. He says, now, you know, you are free, but don't use your freedom for the wrong thing because what it'll do is bring you back into bondage. And then he says this, In chapter 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh or the sinful nature, but rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why didn't he just put down love God? Isn't there two commands, pastor? Love God and love your neighbor. I'm going, but see, you can summarize it in one. Because if you love your neighbor as yourself, that's the way to love God. And that's what John is going to argue here in this fourth chapter. He says, how can you love someone you don't see and not love someone you do see? You can only say you truly love God is when you start expressing love to that which God created other human beings. That's when you know you're loving God is because you're loving other people. You're loving his creation. You're loving his other kids, you know. He's the parent. He's watching the kids. They're fighting in the downstairs and you're finally saying, listen, you got to love your brother, Right? You know, you're killing your brother. You can't do that. You know, and every parent wants their kids to get along and to love each other because you love them equally. Isn't it amazing? You can have one child and you can say, I can't love them any more than I love. I can't, I, there's no other, there's, there's not enough love to go beyond where I'm at with this person. Then you have child number two. You go, how did this happen? I love this child as much as I love the first child. And it doesn't matter how many children you have. If you have a loving heart, you just keep loving them. You know, you're just, your love is growing. And this is what God wants from us. He wants our love to be growing and expanding beyond us out into our homes and then beyond that to other people. He wants us to be, you know, this loving person. I love that. Then it says here, so I say walk by the Spirit, you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature, but the result of the Spirit, notice I said the fruit or the result of the Spirit is love. But notice it's in the singular, it's fruit, singular. Because I believe the fruit of the Spirit or the result of the Spirit is love and all these other eight 
words are actually expressions of love. So love is joyful. Love is peaceful. Love is forbearing. Love is kind. It's good. It's faithful. It's gentle. And it's self-controlled. And when you're love, when you're a loving person, you're not breaking the law. You're not hurting other people. You're not sinning against people. You are doing what's better for others. It's not about you anymore. Wow, is this exciting? This is all how maturity happens. That's why I know people are maturing. I can watch it by their love life. You know, it's how they're treating other people. That's the test to know how mature you are in your walk with God. Well, let me move on. The authentic expression of faith, love is actually that authentic expression of faith that demonstrates the same kind of love God gave us. So how did, what kind of love did God give us? Well, well, what does God's love look like? How do we know this is the right understanding of what true love is? Well, verse 10 says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. So what did he do? He sacrificed for us. He gave himself up for us. So if I'm sacrificing and giving myself up for someone else, I'm loving them. Isn't that true? It's not about what I want. It's about what's best for them. That's what love looks like. That's what he's saying here. Now, the fact that God sent his son into the world, as Warren Worsby says, is one evidence of the fact that Jesus is God. As a matter of fact, babies are not sent into the world from some other place, though there's a group that believes that. But they are born into the world. But, and because of that, it reveals to us this is the eternal son. And he was sent into the world for a purpose. And he willingly came to die for our sins. And so we see here the second purpose of God's love to us. The first is that we might live through him. I love this. You're not living until you know God. Really, you're not living maximum life. You're living a struggle life. But you could be living a free life if you know God. But then the second thing here he says is uh, that, we, that he came as an atoning sacrifice. So what does that word mean? Because I think we have the wrong idea of this word. Matter of fact, different translations use different words. See, we need not stay to inquire whether expiation or remedy for defilement, those are two different translations. They're using, instead of atonement, they're using those words, would be preferable rendering of hilasmos. Hilasmos is a Greek word that speaks of those four ideas, propitiation or atonement. He says those words do well enough. If we use these words in their biblical sense, how many times we use a word and we don't understand what the word really was meant to be? See, you, you, you know, you, got the, you have a language, the New Testament, it's in Greek. You're trying to translate this word, and you're trying to translate in a way that people will understand what it really means. But when we use some words, sometimes we get the wrong understanding. And he goes on to say, not as something which men must do in order to placate God. See, when you think of atonement, a lot of times you think of, I'm doing something to somehow placate God's anger towards my sin. But he says, that's the wrong idea. That's not what it's about. Rather, it's God providing his grace to bring us into his presence with the assurance that we are accepted by him, which is a totally different thought. As a matter of fact, because he has removed the barrier that kept us at a distance, which is guilt, with this attendant retribution, the punishment which is banished by perfect love. 
I'm, I'm going I'm to rephrase all that. I know F.F. Bruce, he's a scholar. He's saying this in a fancy way. But let me just state it this way. How many people in this room, you say, you know, Pastor, I struggle with guilt and shame. Anybody here, you ever struggle with guilt and shame? Come on, let's just be honest. How many here, you know, you, just, you do something, you feel, you know, hey, if you've never done anything wrong, you may not have a struggle. But sometimes we do something, you know, have you ever felt like, I can't believe I did that. I'm so ashamed of myself. Anybody have that experience? Anybody ever, you know, I have a hard time. I'm dealing with, I, I feel like I'm driven by guilt, you know. And I want to just say something to us today. That God wants to alleviate and remove all guilt and shame from us. Isn't that beautiful? So none of us in this room should leave this place with any guilt or shame when we accept the fact that Jesus took our guilt and shame and removed it from us. That you and I can live in a freedom that we are absolutely acceptable and loved by God. How many think that's an amazing thought? To be loved by God, to be accepted by God. That's such a freeing concept. And by the way, when you get free, then you're able to do good things. Because a lot of times we're stuck doing the wrong things because we're, we're battling the shame and the guilt inside of us. We're trying to placate and appease. And, you know, we're, we're trying to do all these things to make ourselves feel better. And I'm just saying, stop wrestling with yourself and surrender to Jesus and allow his love to set you free from all of that. Well, I, I kind of like that. Let me move on to the third thing. And it, it's... The, the love is the authentic expression of faith because it reassures us of having a right relationship to God. How many here, you probably need a little reassurance once in a while? Anybody need any sort of reassurance? Okay, so what John is going to do now is give us some reassurance that we have a right relationship with God. And he starts out by saying that what we believe is critical. In verse 15, it says, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God that he has for us, for God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. So he's trying to, he says here, you know what? If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord, and you've received him, what he's saying is that God is now living inside of you. See, God's spirit will come and live inside of you. And it's, the spirit of God is the spirit of love. And he comes inside and he lives inside of us. And we are resting on the assurance of that relationship because of what Jesus Christ did. So here we are standing before God in the last moment of time, okay? We're in the judgment day. And by the way, non-Christians will experience judgment and so will Christians. But Christians will never be judged for their sins. How many think that's pretty neat? You say, well, what are you going to be judged for, Pastor? We're going to be judged for how much value our life had as a believer. In other words, we're going to be judged based on where we living a life surrendered in obedience, doing God's will. That's what he's looking at. So the successful life is not who has the most toys. The successful life is the person who is surrendering their lives to do the will of God for their lives. That's the successful person. Being obedient to God, that's success. Okay? So, Herschel Hobbes says this. He says, but this assurance involves more than the repetition of a creed. So we just sang this beautiful creed. But he says it's more than just like, I believe in God the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. It's more than just saying what I believe. He says it means total commitment to Jesus. It means trusting. See, the word belief 
is kind of a weak word. That's the word we use as a translator, but it's a weak word because it just means intellectual assent. I think when you talk about the word, you know, I'm trusting in Jesus is a stronger term, and I think it's a better term. We should maybe use that term. I'm trusting. I've committed my life to Christ. Okay? And then he says, to make this confession in John's day, boy, this was challenging because you knew you were going to suffer persecution and maybe even death. And you say, why is that, Pastor? Because we live in a culture today that's very individualistic. But when you go to an Asian culture, that's not how they live. They live in community. And so for you to step outside of your community, that's taking a great risk. Now you're cut off from everything you know. You know. And so as he says, it involves complete separation from one's former community, whether Jew or Gentile. And, you know, how many think it's a big deal to lose your family? How many think it's a big deal when your whole life is registrated by, you know, is, is legislated or is, is developed based on your family because that's how you get your job, that's who you marry. It's all determined by your family. All of a sudden you lose all of that. So now what do you got to have? You got to have a new family. And here's the good news, that when you and I come to Christ, we get a new family. Yes, hallelujah. And it's not a family. It's just like every earthly family. How many know you don't pick your family members? They're just born into your family and you just get them. That's who you got for your sibling, right? You know, they're born into that family. And it's the same thing in the family of God. You and I are born into this family. Hallelujah. And so all of a sudden people are being born into the family. Isn't that true? Yeah, and it's just like a human family. How many said I had a few problems with my siblings once in a while? There was some conflict going on here, Right? You know, there was a little bit of competition and all the rest of it. But that's what the disciples were doing. They were competing. Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God? Jesus said, you're thinking down the wrong path. Actually, you need to humble yourself. You need to forget about yourself. You need to serve other people. You need to love other people. I'm showing you how to live. It's powerful. And sometimes we have to learn how to forgive. Which I think we've got to learn a lot about that one. And he goes on to say... Such a confession would be made only if one saw in Jesus the total answer to his need and found in his indwelling power the presence sufficient for such a need. In other words, you better be convinced that Jesus is going to meet every need you have. But I want to declare to you today, not only does he do that for this life, he does it for all of eternity. This is an amazing thing. You know, we're in a forever family. I don't know if you guys know this, but we're going to hang for a long time. You know, you, you think, well, you know, eventually the pastor won't be here. I have news for you. I'll be with you in eternity. Yeah, it's the truth. We're going to be together for a long time. So we better start getting along right now, right? Because we're going to be hanging for a long time, whether we like it or not. That's the way it works, you know? And then it says, you know, what we believe is important, but what we do is critical. In other words, we have a confidence when we stand before the judgment seed of Christ. Look at 1 John 4, 17. And this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. How many would like to have confidence on the day of judgment? I'm going to stand before God. I have absolute confidence. Here's why you're going to have confidence. One, you're not looking at yourself. See, that's our biggest problem on earth. We're too self-focused. How many say that's true? Too self-focused. Get your eyes off yourself. Take a look at your Savior. What did Jesus do for you? He died for you. So when I get to heaven, it's not going to be about what I did or didn't do. I'm going to be looking and I'll just say, it's all about you, Jesus. You did it for me. You died for me. That's the only reason. That's the only ground I can stand on with full assurance, okay? Number one. Number two here, it says, and in this world, we are like Jesus. Notice what it says at verse 17. Colon, in this world, we are like Jesus. 
I have confidence on the day of judgment because I'm behaving Christ-like. I'm confident on the day of judgment because I've experienced God's love. And how I know I have is because I'm changing and I'm becoming more loving. How many think that's amazing? It's hard to change. Anybody try? It's very difficult. But if the Spirit of God starts working in me, He can change me. And He's working on me. And He's been working on me a long time. I've been a Christian for over 40 years. And I'm going, boy, has this been a slow process, God. I'm just telling them, I'm being honest. This has been a slow job, you know, to change me. Now, that doesn't mean that I have to agree or endorse all other people's behavior. You know, Herschel Hobbes says, you know, um, you may not agree with another Christian. You may not even like him or her, or you may not like him or her ways, but we can be certain that in our sins of commission and omission, God is not pleased, but he loves us just the same. How many think that's amazing? And we must do the same with our brothers and sisters. What is he saying? He's saying simply this. How many know that there's moments in our life, but I'm not, I go, you know what? I don't agree with that person. I don't even like what that person's doing. But that doesn't mean I have to stop, I can stop loving them. How many understand what I'm saying? You know, how many here as a parent, you go, I love my kid, but I don't like what they're doing. Does that ever happen? Does that ever happen? Well, that's how God feels towards us. He always loves us, but he doesn't always like what we're doing. And that's true in the church too. Sometimes I have to say to somebody, you know, I really love you, but I don't like what you're doing. By the way, is that a good thing to do for somebody? Sure it is. You know what? I think sometimes we don't help people because we just let them keep going down a bad track. Sometimes we've got to stop and say, hey, you, have you thought about what you're doing here? You know, I've actually begged people not to sin. Some of them have listened. Some of them have just told me, I'm doing it anyways, Pastor. Well, I've had that conversation. You know, I felt bad. I'm not trying to be a good guy. I'm just trying to say, hey, I love you so much. I can't, it's, it's killing me to watch you do this bad decision. And it's, it's affecting other people in a negative way. I've got to say something. I'm going to say something. And even if you write me off, I want you to know I'll always love you, but I don't agree with what you're doing. That's what we've got to come to that point. Finally, God's love rules in our heart, causes us to live an obedient life as expressed in obeying his word. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. How do we know we love each other? This is a very interesting answer. By loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. Now, why is he, why is he saying that? Let's go back. If sin is selfishness and love is unselfishness and if I'm saying and I'm doing what God wants me to do, then I'm doing a loving thing. Every time I obey God, that's a loving thing to do. You say, Why? Because it's going to bless other people. And my obedience is going to bring blessing to people. And my disobedience to God's word is going to hurt other people. And that's why it's sinful. It's not only hurting God, it's going to hurt my brothers and sisters. So I need to start realizing, you know, I can't just do anything I want to do. Because what I'm going to do is going to affect many other people. And, you know, as a Christian leader, I've known this for a long time. I go, hey... I just don't do anything I think I should do. I'm considering my actions are going to affect a lot of other people's lives. Isn't that true? Of course it is. But sometimes we minimize our lives and say, well, what, how's my life going to affect people? I'm going to tell you, every time you as parents do the wrong thing, you're affecting your kids in a negative way. That's the truth. 
Pay attention to this. And every time you're obeying, you're bringing blessing to your home. Every time you obey God, you're, you're actually loving God, you're loving your kids. You're loving. That's a loving thing to do. Wow, that's powerful. I think it's really powerful. Loving God means we love his word and delight to do it. You know, it's really fascinating. It's not just, you know, you may start out going, well, it's the right thing to do, I'll do it as a duty. But I found sometimes in life, when you do the right thing, even though you do it for the wrong reasons, eventually you'll find out this is actually good and you'll begin to enjoy it. Isn't that funny? How many of you ever started doing something you knew it was right, you did it just because you knew it was the right thing to do, but eventually you came to love it? Anybody have that experience? Sure, it happens all the time. That's why I tell people, do the right thing, I don't care how you feel. Eventually the feelings will catch up to you. And eventually you'll start enjoying it. Eventually you'll start delighting in it. You'll delight in the right thing. So, loving God, it's an interesting thing. You know, it's interesting. You can actually give without loving. I love what Herschel Hobbes writes. He says, you can actually give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. What is he saying? It's possible to be doing the right thing without the motive of love, but once you have love in you, you'll be doing the right thing. And, you'll be, and you know, love is about giving. You know, it's so funny at Christmas time. You know, people, the people, some people, it's about what am I going to get? Wrong thinking. See, if you're a loving person, you're just enjoying giving. That's the fun part, right? Some of you are not convinced, but that's okay. (laughs) One day when you grow up, you'll discover what I'm talking about. I'm being nice about it. It's the truth, you know? So what is John really saying to us? He's saying that love is the supreme evidence that God is working in and through us. That's what he's telling you. And I love what Leonard Sweet and Frank Viola say, and I heartily agree with them. They say, you know, there's a little wristband or all that stuff that says, what would Jesus do? That's not Christianity. I'm going to shatter a myth right now. That is not Christianity, folks. So when you walk around going, what would Jesus do? No, Christianity asks, what is Jesus doing through me and through us? In other words, it's not that I'm trying to do the right thing. It's that I am doing the right thing. And why am I doing the right thing? Because I've yielded my life to God and I'm letting his spirit at work in my life and I'm allowing him to empower me to do the right thing. You see, every right thing is easy to do in the spirit and impossible to do in my human nature. Can I say that again? Is this making sense to you? Everything that God is asking me to do is easy and delightful to do when I'm doing it in the spirit, but it's miserable and difficult and impossible for me to do when I'm trying to do it in my own strength. I fail every time. So you go, well then, pastor, how do we get into the spirit? I'm glad you asked that question. It's the right question to ask. It's by giving up. It's by giving up. Let me me close with, well, let me just finish this uh, How is he doing it? Following Jesus means to trust and obey as the old hymn goes, but faith and obedience to Christ isn't self-effort. It's responding to God's will and living by his indwelling life through the power of the Spirit. That's true. The ultimate expression of love is the giving of ourselves as we have seen how God did that for us. True love for God is the giving of our lives for him. I'm going to close with the story. I love the story. It's told of William Borden. Some of you, I've told it once or twice before, but when I've been here 30 years, I can repeat a couple things. So, 1904, William Borden graduated from Chicago High School. 
he was born in absolute wealth. His parents were multimillionaires in 1904. Okay, they were like the extreme wealthy of the United States. When he graduated at 16 years old, they were so wealthy they decided to send him around the world as a graduation gift. Now that's back in the day when people didn't travel around the world, okay? It was very expensive to do that. And he did, he went to Asia, Africa, he went to Middle East, he went to all these countries. And you know what happened as a result of him traveling around the world? He had such a burden for the brokenness in the world, he felt God calling him to become a missionary. Now some of his friends thought, what a waste, Bill, being a missionary, really? You know, you're a multimillionaire. Why would you want to do that? And so off he goes in 1905 to Yale University. And so he writes in the back of his Bible when his friend wrote that, he said in two words, no reservation, no reserve. I'm going to go for it. So he comes on the campus of Yale in 1905 and he's trying to fit in like the rest of the freshmen, the first year students. But, he's not, but besides being extremely wealthy, he stood out. Now I'll tell you why he stood out. He was a young man that was so committed to God. He had settled the issue of his life's purpose so he knew exactly what he wanted to do. Most people at that age, they don't know that stuff. He did. He had surrendered fully to Christ. And people began to realize he had such an amazing internal strength inside of him. During his college years, Bill Borden made an entry in his personal journal that defined what his classmates were actually seeing inside of him. This is what he wrote in his journal. Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. He wrote that. Now, he's probably 17, 18 years old. That's pretty good, you know, for a young person. How many think that's pretty, pretty good? That's pretty powerful. But watch what happens when you start saying no to yourself and yes to Christ every time. This is what starts happening. He was really disappointed because the president of Yale got up and, and gave a convocation, an, a, a, an address, spoke in a convocation about the student's needs for having a fixed purpose in life. And after the speech, Borden wrote, he neglected to say what our purpose should be and where we should get the ability to persevere and the strength to resist temptation. In other words, this president is doing exactly like most educators do today, telling you the good stuff, but not telling you how to get to that stuff. They don't give you the, the internal stuff to make it. Does that make sense? You know, it's, it's nice to tell people what they need to do, but it's really nice to tell them how to get there. That's what he was saying. He was frustrated. He says, hey, these guys aren't going to get there. You know, you need something greater than yourself to live out a purpose higher than yourself. That's what Borden was trying to say. And then he started noticing this, the faculty and the students at Yale. He was lamenting because of their empty humanistic philosophy, their moral weakness, and their sin-ruined lives. Nothing has changed. So what does he do? In his first semester, one of his friends described how it began. He, he says, we were in the first term and Bill and I began to pray in the morning before breakfast. I cannot say positively whose suggestion it was, but I feel sure it must have originated with Bill. We had been meeting only a short time when a third student joined us and soon after fourth. And the time spent in prayer after a brief reading of scripture, Bill would pull a promise out of the Bible and then we would proceed to claim the promise with full assurance from God. Well, Borden's small morning prayer group birthed the movement. By the end of the first year, 150 freshmen, that's first year students, were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. By the time he got to his last year, senior year, his fourth year, 
of the 1,300 students in Yale, 1,000 were now joining for Bible study and prayer. One guy's life. What was he saying? No to self, yes to God. Okay. But his ministry did not stop at campus. This guy, he got beyond the campus. He cared about widows and orphans and the disabled. He went down to the, to the mission. You know, he, he created the, actually founded the Yale Hope Mission for people who were struggling with alcohol addictions. He would actually take them to dinner. He would talk, tell them about Christ. His call eventually narrowed down to the Muslim Kansu people in China. Once he fixed his eyes on that goal, he never wavered. He also challenged his classmates to consider missionary service. Most of them say, really? Yep. One of them said of him, he certainly was one of the strongest characters I've ever known. He put backbone into every one of our lives. There was real iron in him. Although he was a millionaire, Bill seemed to realize that he must be about his heavenly father's business. Upon graduating, Borden turned down very high-paying jobs, and in his Bible, he wrote two more words, no retreat. Borden went on to graduate work at Princeton Seminary, and when he finished his studies at Princeton, he sailed for China. But because he was hoping to work with Muslims, he first stopped in Egypt to study Arabic. And while there, he contracted spinal meningitis. And a month later, died at the age of 25 years old. When the news of his death was cabled back to the U.S., the story was carried by nearly every American newspaper. Remember, his family is very well known in the States. It says, a wave of sorrow went around the world. Borden not only gave away his wealth, but himself in a way so joyously and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. That was by his biographer. Was Borden's untimely death a waste? Not in God's perspective. Prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserve and no retreats, he had written the words, no regrets. Folks, you know, so often when we we think about what's going to change our life, you know, I can sit down and say, you know, if we could just fully surrender to God. But that's like coming to God and giving him nothing. I want to come back to a word that I said briefly, the word consecration. You say, what is consecration, Pastor? It means giving God everything. I come to him with my hands full. And you know, I understand this concept because, you know, there's been moments in my life where I've made consecrations to God. But I can remember back, probably one of the most defining moments in my young life, I was 21 or 22 years old. I had just become a follower of Christ. I was attending an amazing church. I really loved my pastor. He was an amazing guy. Every time he preached on Sunday, I thought, he's speaking right to me. And every Sunday, I felt like, wow, you know, I feel like crying every week. I don't know what's wrong with me. You know, God's spirit was really working in my life. But I still remember the one day when he spoke on being a slave for Christ. And I remember the story he shared from the Old Testament, how a human being... Because he loved his master, he decided he didn't want to be free from his master. He could actually, after seven years, be set free. But he decided he didn't want to do that. And so he could publicly affirm his love for his master by taking, you know, they put an owl in his ear, A-U-L. It's got like an earring in one ear. And every time somebody saw that person, they realized that person is a lifetime love slave. And when Paul was describing his relationship to Jesus Christ, Paul called himself, Paul, a love slave of Jesus. While I was sitting in that gathering that morning, I'll never forget it, 
The Holy Spirit spoke to my spirit. Pastor didn't say this. God's spirit spoke to my spirit. And said, if a man could love love another man so much to give up his freedom for his entire life, motivated solely out of love, would you be willing to do that for me? I was so broken. When the service ended, I came forward. People were leaving. You know, it's just like regular church. Everyone's leaving. I came forward, knelt down. I began to sob. I was sobbing. So, you know, I don't cry. You can ask these. I'm not given to that stuff. You know, I'm just like a total basket case, sobbing. 25 minutes, weeping before God, saying, Lord, I'll do it. And you know, it's so funny, and it's just very typical of the church. You know, the last person remaining was an old elder. I knew him. Came down, he thought, oh, my, Paul must have done something terrible. Well, I'm serious. I mean, that's what he was thinking. I mean, you're so broken, he thought, man, I must have killed somebody or something, you know? So he's quoting the scriptures, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just. I'm going, that's not what's going on here. But that's how we think, you know? It's always a bad thing. You know what the problem is? Sometimes it's a good thing. And the good thing was at that moment, I came with, to God with my hands full and I said, I don't have a lot to offer you, but here it is. And I'll tell you something, it changed my life. I would not be here today if it wasn't for that moment when God's Spirit spoke to me and called me to give my life fully to Him. You know, we're living in a culture today that we don't require anything of anybody and it's all about us. And that's why we're living such superficial sin-ruined, broken lives. And so as we stand this morning, we're going to close in a word of prayer. I'm going to ask you to do something, you know. And I didn't do it just one time. I've done it more than one occasion. But I think this morning God's Spirit has been speaking. And we were praying this morning. I was weeping for you and asking God that you would surrender fully to God and watch what God would do in your life. Because when you have that kind of a surrendered life, things begin to happen big time. Because, you know, we think, well, you know, you know what our problem is? We look at ourselves and we go, I got all these limitations, Pastor. God goes, I already know that. But with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. What he's looking for is fully surrendered lives. Fully surrendered. Just coming as you are. Just say, okay, I just give you everything. And boy, I'll tell you, when you have that kind of a life, God can start working in very powerful ways. It's the truth. And how many here, just with head bowed right now, that's you. You're saying, God's Spirit is speaking to me right now. I want to surrender everything. I just want to lay it at His feet. I'm just going to lay my life at His feet. I have no idea where this is taking me. But I'll tell you one thing. God's going to use your life in ways beyond your imagination because you're saying yes to Him. God will do something great. And it can be just as, you know, like you think of William Borden. I mean, 25 years old, his life was over. But you know what? A thousand people in Yale University were totally transformed by his life. Isn't that amazing? One young life. You know, and you think back to 1905, a thousand people out of Yale, that would have been a lot of the leaders in the United States. This young man was touching leaders in the nation. You don't know who you will touch. You say, well, I don't have a great sphere like that, Pastor. It doesn't matter. You can touch one person. One person, and that person goes on to touch a lot of people. You have no idea what God will do with your life. Let us pray this morning.
Let's ask God to help us. You know, maybe some of you are saying, I want to live a life full of love. I want God's love to so fill me up. I just want to be a channel of God's marvelous, amazing love. You know, because let's face it, when you and I can love like God loves, people are going to either hate us or their lives are going to be changed because of us. Isn't that true? We're going to influence them. We won't change them. We know God changes them. I understand that. But God will use you as the vessel to help, you know, people, lives be transformed. And that's what it's about. So, Lord, we do bow before you today. We recognize our poverty. We know that in ourselves, as we look at ourselves, there's brokenness, weakness, self-centeredness, and selfishness. We know it's all there. And, Father, it's probably even worse than we know because there's a lot of things we don't even know about ourselves that you know. But deep down inside, Lord, if there's a, a stirring, a calling, a desire, a longing to be all that we were designed by you originally to be, I pray today that we will experience that and we will experience your love in a measure maybe we've never known before and may we become a channel of that amazing love to every person that we come in contact with. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.